0: Hey, this is Steve, host of the show. Just to let you know, the audio is a little bit rough in some of the areas. I cleaned it up best I could. Enjoy the show.
1: Welcome to
2: AOL. Welcome to AOL Underground.
1: And then Apple came back to us and wanted to have us do their Mm eWorld. And we did. Once a month, we would go out there to do an install of all the changes that had been made during that month. And that's when release management finally kicked in where they had no choice but to do what I said. Because somebody had to track them all and test that we could install them on one of Craig's systems <laughs> and, you know, and go from there.
0: Is this the surface side
1: you're talking about installing? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, and it was all the things that we had. They had a Tandem and a Stratus and all that stuff out there and we had to install it there. So I would fly out there and install it on the system and almost nobody remembers eWorld because I think it only lasted about two, maybe three years.
3: I didn't even last three years. eWorld ended, I want to say, shortly after I left the NOG. What's eWorld? eWorld was Apple's online service for their Macintosh.
1: It was a rebranding of AOL, and they did it really cool. I mean,
3: it looked awesome. (laughs) I I have to say that eWorld's implementation of AOL was significantly better Then AOL's implementation, especially after Red Door Interactive, we did all of our design stuff and I liked the owner of of Red Door Interactive and and after we bought their company, I understood why we went with them. But before that, I was so rooting for the other company.
2: A couple of other things too, let's not forget. AOL was responsible for a couple of generations of men learning how to type with one hand. (laughs) (laughs) These important skills. Thank
4: God for <laughs> office <his> doors.
3: <laughs> Let's not be sexist here. There were plenty of women who typed with one hand too.
2: Okay, all right. I, I, that's true. I, I, I wasn't sure if we can blanket that across, but
1: uh... <laughs> Steve, you had a question there to ask, and I apologize. We're old friends getting together and reminiscing.
0: <laughs> What's Tandy
1: Link? Radio Shack had a computer. And everything there went by Tandy as far as their computer line goes. And we created software that used their interface, which was not Windows, and we created a service. It was, you know, like the F1 button was this, F12 button was that, but it, we called the button names up there.
2: Did it have only that really small interface, the uh, little uh, four or five lines, or was it something different?
1: No, it was a real, okay. you know, regular monitor with color. hmm But it was each one we customized and built the code for their operating system. Once we got PC Link, we could actually run it on the Commodore, which, believe it or not, were PCs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Commodore built
2: PCs.
1: (laughs) But um, eventually some of them died out just like Commodore because there was a level where Maintaining it from a business perspective no longer made sense.
2: I loved my Commodore 64. There was a blizzard in Washington, D.C. whenever the Commodore 64 debuted. And uh, and my partner Michael and I drove through that blizzard to get to the convention center in Washington, D.C. to buy two Commodore 64s because they were so anticipated by everybody. He wrote for Commodore Run Magazine and, and a number of other magazines that were Commodore related. He wrote programs for them and got published probably every other uh, month in there.
1: That's where I know the name from. Oh. Um, I, joined, I bought QLink link for my Commodore because I wanted to get into bulletin boards.
2: Mm-hmm. Dollar a And bond, I wanted yeah. the free modem. <laughs>
1: and so I plugged this 300 baud modem in my computer oh. and I was like so psyched. I went to college at 300 baud. <laughs> and then I upgraded to the 1200, and it was like you could always tell when a user just got their 1200 baud modem. 1200 baud, $1,200, about the same price. Yeah. <laughs> but you could see them. It was like they were high.
2: I had to program at 300 baud. There is no life at 300 baud.
1: But at the time, it was good.
0: How did it go from bulletin boards to people using the America Online GUI and stuff?
1: It did start off as Commodore. Commodore is the first interactive online system. And they had bulletin boards. They had software boards. They had chat. They had instant messages. Um, they had an auditorium.
2: <laughs> but it wasn't branded as AOL back then. No, it was, was
1: called q Just like it became PC Link and Apple Link. Mm -hmm. And our version of Apple Link was called Apple Link Personal Edition. But they all had interfaces that looked like when the first Mac AOL came out, because that's when it turned into America Online, was when we hit the Macs. And we did the Mac and the Windows releases at the same time under AOL. And that was. Even there, the difference between the different computers was the resolution, not the content of what they did. Even with the Commodore, we tried to port it, but we lost our games playing that we did online with Commodore um, for a long time when we went to the Apple and so forth. It was a long time before we brought games back casino rabbit jack's casino was the only thing that transitioned first and even it ended up going away online because they became afraid of gambling laws because that was old enough ago that some states would allow online gambling and some would not and they would have come after america online to be reimbursed (laughs) for all the taxes on it or Anyway, so
0: oh, so the first online gambling was with America Online.
1: No, it was with Commodore. With Commodore, okay. And it went away <laughs> with America
0: Online. In- interesting. That's really really interesting.
1: I mean, it's not. I understand revisionist history because people, all the textbooks about the history of the internet, are written by people that are a lot younger than us. <laughs> who grew up in the 90s and, you know, but that's when they were growing up and it's different. What they knew as truth may not actually be the whole truth, but it is the truth as far as what they could compare with. So I'm not saying it was intentionally ignoring. I'm just saying that once it's grown up to look like this, you can't imagine it looking like this ten years before that, or sometimes even five years yeah. before that. So I don't mm-hmm. blame people for it.
2: I just They may not have known about, you know, the, the, the you know, right. the little we were kind of niched, you know, you had to have a modem and all this stuff to get well, to no, it. Even we,
1: after we you know- <laughs> moved away from modems to TCPIP, there's still a lot of that history that's missing.
3: Well, don't yeah. don't forget. I mean, AOL did start their own internet service provider as well. Exactly. Um and to 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 compete with with their <laughs> compete with themselves because we were looking at churn and we wanted to capture new users mm-hmm. and we had this great infrastructure so why not leverage it to offer people the ability to dial up or hop online. Mm-hmm. That way it was really the advent of broadband that kind of started curtailing AOL, though AOL had an opportunity, as I understand it, and Jan or Craig, maybe you can speak further to this, because this is outside of, of anything that I would have experienced. We had an opportunity with Verizon, I think, to become the face of their broadband internet. I don't, I'm not aware of it. The
1: thing that probably shot AOL itself in the foot was a technology grew. Um, and we tried to match them by moving to a web-based client and we lost some of the stuff we had when we had hard clients, but they also was the shift to channels. They decided, I remember Steve talking about how we're going to model this now, like a cable TV. And when they decided to merge with Time Warner, I, I had a long talk with my financial advisor and he didn't agree with me and he came back 9 months later and said i've been thinking about what you said and you know what i think you're right
3: <laughs> so i wish i had talked to you <laughs> about the AOL merger yeah
2: yeah the time Warner was the was the was the beginning of the end of any any possibility of making money as a um with stock options at AOL that was nobody anyone who got stock options after that um did not did not make money off of it
3: Unfortunately. It was going
1: to settle at 45 and not go anywhere. That's what I told him.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Well, one of the mm-hmm. things about broadband was it, it really brought the internet to your computer. And AOL, for, for all of its locked-in visuals, locked-in tools that you could use. And while, yes, they did ultimately expand it so that you could use TCPIP outside of the AOL client itself, moving to that browser-based concept, I think, was one of the worst mistakes that we ever made, just simply because AOL was different. It separated itself from the chafe of the internet because you had companies who had their corporate channels on AOL and you knew going on to AOL onto those corporate channels that you were getting the corporate information that you needed, whereas today you do a Google search and you could wind up on Joe Blow's internet blog, has nothing to do with the company that you're looking for information on, and yet portends to be an absolute authority.
2: AOL gave you a curated handholding that you could trust.
3: Yeah. And even beyond that, I mean, Jan, you mentioned so many things were lost by moving to that that browser-based concept. And and I really missed it when I came back into the country and I looked at what AOL had become, I was like, okay, yeah, I I can see why the stock price dumped. Mm-hmm. It was a very sad experience.
1: And your friend and mine who moved to them convinced them that moving away from the client was the way to go. Vaporware friend.
3: Wow.
0: Are, are we not saying who it was? Do we not, do we not want
1: to say?
3: Yep. That's a surprise. <laughs> <laughs>
1: He's very well honored on the internet.
3: <laughs> One of the, the humorous, well, sort of humorous things. Um, did you know that Craig Dykstra almost hired me to do Rain Man with him?
1: That is cool.
3: And yeah, I'd gone through, I'd interviewed with him. It was it was directly out of my work on um, adjusting the dial-up system to get rid of, who was it? it was Telnet that went over to SprintNet. Mm-hmm. And so I took over responsibility for populating the phone numbers that people could select and updating the naming of them from what used to be Telnet to SprintNet. Um, and we used BT TimeNet and... Then we added in, um, used to be Arpanet. I'm drawing a blank on who it is. Your unit? It might be UUNET. unit. Anyways, so from that, he'd actually seen. Okay, well, you've taught yourself some programming. You seem to be pretty good. You're good at problem solving. Blah 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 blah. Come talk to me about working on Rainman with me because this is a new product at the time, and it's going to be it's going to revolutionize AOL publishing, and it did. There were a bunch of hair pulling times where Rain Man would just stop, but that's beside the point and out of the story. So I went and I talked to Matt Korn about it and Matt said, no, you're not leaving operations. I'm not going to let you go. And I was young and bullheaded and um, probably a little stupid. And I went to HR and the VP of HR sat down with Matt and sat down with Craig and came back to me and said, if you want the job, the job's yours. So I'm sitting there thinking, okay, do I leave where I am now when I got a call from Matt Corn, who said, yes, I understand that I can't stop you from moving if you really, really want to. However, I really think that you should stay in operations. And I did, and it was an incredible run the every now and then i wonder about whether i should have gone the rainman route because it would have given me a completely different set of skills today rainman for those who don't know was the primary publishing platform for AOL any kind of user consumable content put out by any of our media partners had to be published through rainman once it was released so
0: how was the, how was the content sent to Rain Man? Was it through like through email, Adams, and FDO code or
1: actually Rainman was what received the content from the partners. They had an interface that would allow them to submit stuff.
0: Like, like a GUI or something they would like like a, like a desktop program or
1: they had a format they had to use to send it in.
0: It was a text based format or it was like a GUI
1: editor that uh, how did it work? They were originally text files, weren't they,
3: Brian? Um, they were text file. They were essentially markdown text files with links to imagery that would be pulled in. So if you, if you think about an HTML page today, it was essentially a markup language that was developed by AOL that the content creators would use to create the content displays that would then be submitted. Rayman would process them, disperse it wherever it needed to, load the imagery wherever it needed to, and then. When you went to, say, Microsoft's forum area, and you clicked on any one of their articles, it would actually hit RainMan, and RainMan would then deliver the content to you.
1: Using FBO. (laughs) Just as a side point of that, he mentioned the extended markup language. That was before they had XML for the web.
0: Interesting. Was there something called like Visual Publisher RainMan as well?
3: If there was, that's after my time. Ditto. <laughs> yeah. Don't know it.
1: We did XML before there was XML.
3: <laughs> I
2: like the description. Rain Man was sort of like an HTML markup language. You wrote the commands <laughs> and such in, in a format, and it built the visual part of it for you.
0: I don't know if you know there's a project right now. It's called ReAOL, and uh, some folks got the AOL 3.0 client working again, and they've been gathering people's old hard drives they cached the FDO code locally, right, in, in a file called main.idx. And so they would gather that, and then they're trying to rebuild keywords and stuff. And they have a chat room working, and they're they're trying to build other stuff. They're like really trying to grasp onto whatever they can for to, to find different FDO code manuals and stuff like that. Um, so so there, there's a whole like subculture right now that is working on <laughs> this markup language.
2: We're, we're liable to get inundated with the, <laughs> with, with the emails now.
1: <laughs> you know, there's a museum out in California called MADE that has old computer machines and all this stuff. But they actually have habitat running on a Stratus <laughs> with multiplexers getting to it and they actually have it running. The last time I spoke with them, they were still losing avatars heads. <laughs> but the avatars were fine. You know, but they had the code and everything and a number of us from those early Qlink days were helping them to get it up.
0: Oh, that's cool. That's awesome. So um I did have a question about yes. the you had mentioned earlier in the podcast about stopping the 15-year-old, right, from Canada. And then, Aresi, you, you also mentioned fighting some of the whereas on the FTP servers. And I know that there was also a big culture of people creating uh, punters with like AOL and stuff. And there's, it, it's kind of funny because there's a lot of people from that era, like teenagers, that grew up creating programs to manipulate AOL, but now they have... Careers, and they attributed to when they were hacking on AOL, right? Yeah, yeah, he was brilliant. I'm curious, just what they all staff. Um, were they just annoyed by it, or or what was there?
1: What What are your thoughts on that? We hired three of them. Oh, really? Jay Levitt, one of the ones that Brian mentioned. He was our youngest employee. I think he was 16 when he came on board. Um, and Eric McCormick, and I'm sorry, I don't know the new name now.
3: Most of the people who worked for me were hackers.
1: Were hackers at <laughs>
3: heart. Oh no, a couple of them were actual hackers.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. It, Jay was just curious. Yes, he just yeah. and he was smart as hell. I mean, it was scary smart. He, scary. he he really was. He was fantastic. He was as bright as Mark was, and that's why Mark worked with him on the mail system. That's why he tagged him for it because Mark knew that if anybody could do it, he could.
4: I think that you know we wouldn't have hired any one of those uh, script kiddies going out there and manipulating the credit cards, but that the, the people who were out there actually testing our code and looking for loopholes in our code were the kind of people that we were looking for if we could find them and if we could make them offers. Because they were the kind of people, and I think still are the kind of people, if you can find them, for whom you can say, you know, you're brilliant. Would you like a a job doing this legitimately? You know, and I think for the most part, they haven't already been turned by the evil empire, uh, whoever they may be. Whether you know be the Soviets or they're like not Soviets anymore, the Russians, you know, the Chinese, whomever. But if you know if they're doing it out of their curiosity, and if they're doing it out of their desire to learn and not out of malicious intent per se it's very easy to convert somebody from doing something quote-unquote nefarious to doing something good and I think that's you know that's where my interest came from that's where a lot of the people that worked with me and with Brian I mean yes we were hackers but you know it was very easy to turn us from from black hats to white hats just by saying, hey, we'll pay you. Just stop doing the bad
1: stuff. Just do the good stuff. It's like Jay was one of our sysops on the Commodore. Eric came in as a Q guide. I came in as a Q guide. What's a Q guide? On the Commodore, the goal was to get people interested, suck them in, and keep them online as long as you could, essentially. (laughs) And so, when a new person started, they didn't know what to do, where to go. And they also got very confused when they hit people connection. And at that point, people connection, mail, and instant messaging were the only things that were plus services. You could do all the software boards, pull down all the MIDI stuff you wanted, and everything else. But chat, you know, all that was, and you could locate people while you were sitting in. The bulletin board. You could locate someone, see if they were online, and send them an instant message. And you wouldn't have. You only pay for the instant message, not for sitting in a chat room talking to them. Um, but once you hit there, people would need help, or if you need help, go to People Connection, and someone will help. And they were called Q Guides. Q is in Q Link Guide. So there would always be somebody on duty in the lobby whenever anyone showed up who would help engage them with other people as well. Even before I became a cue guide, I've had a habit of playing a kitten and climbing up the curtains behind the cue guide's desk and stuff like that. Or, and people would engage and they would stay online longer. And I was one of the graveyard cue guides. Which was, and I happened to have, I happened to have met my boyfriend at the same time because we were both in Reston, but he was a developer for the company. Um, Bill Pitlavani. And he's the one who did the Commodore 128 and the Apple Link software and all. But, you know, I was telling him, look, these Q-kitties go- are killing us. You know, they're making paying people drop offline and they're not paying a penny. And I, I ended up writing up a cost benefit analysis for having, I was working at a bank at a time, for having somebody in the office who could kick them off on the Stratus. You know, because I'd be over at Bill's, they were going crazy, and he'd kick them off using his Stratus tools. And I'm like, look, all you need is to pay one person to be here for these hours, and you are going to save money. And I gave them numbers and stuff like that. And sure enough, they offered me the, you know, the position to do so and give me a manager as well. They doubled my pay to come from the bank I was working at. I worked in the commercial loans group. And he was like, you know, well, you know, it's a startup company. It may or may not work, you know, but you've got all this other stuff going on. You know, I think you should do it. And we ran a Dun & Bradstreet on them and everything else. And it was like, it might work, it might not work. And he said, look, go. A year from now, if they don't make it, you can come back here. We're not going to pay you the same amount of money, <laughs> but you can come back here. A year and a half later, First American went insolvent. And quantum was still around and doing well. So I I grabbed the right ship.
3: Wow. It's it's really funny because I kind of fell into my position. I actually was working at Sprint in their network area, actually troubleshooting the dial-up phone lines that AOL used. And because that was my primary position, I talked with one of the computer operators who was there all the time. I worked overnights at Sprint, and all the guys there were ex-military, very very you know, manly men. Um, and everything was great. They were about to make me a job offer to move from being a contractor um, into, or moving from a temp position into a permanent position. And it was the night after Pride. It was my first Pride as an out gay man. And um, I came in the next that, that night with a couple of Pride badges on my fanny pack that I'd forgotten to take off before I came in. What's pride? Um, gay pride. Gay and lesbian pride. Gay pride. Um, oh no! But
0: you said it, you said it was your first pride. What does that mean?
3: That, that means it was the first gay pride that I went to at, at, as an out gay man.
0: No, is is that like an event?
3: Yeah, it's a yearly event that happens to, to celebrate gay pride.
0: Is, is it the parade? Because oh, sorry, in Chicago we had the gay pride parade, but so you just call it, you just call it pride.
3: Yeah, okay. well, there, there's a pride festival that goes along with the parade in DC. All over the place at the time. Yeah. More than just the parade. Okay. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you, thank you for clarifying. No problem. So the next day I got called by my supervisor saying, Okay, so I've been getting these complaints about you, blah, 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 blah. So we're not going to extend an offer to you for right now, but let's let's see how things go for a month. You work on these particular things, and we'll revisit this next month. Two days later, Sprint handed down a hiring freeze. Day after that, they terminated all of their temporary employees. So on my last night working at Sprint, I happened to mention to this person that it was my last night, so they'd be dealing with somebody else in the future, and and I'm sorry that I couldn't get to blah, 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 whatever, and she was like, well, I know that they're hiring here, why don't you send me your resume? I was like, sure. Fired off my resume to her, got a call, did the interview, it was for a customer service position. Absolutely convinced I blew the interview. And a week later they called and offered me the position. And from there on, it was it was the best place I've ever worked. That's
0: great that you were able to move over to AOL after that. But that that really sucks, that kind of treatment.
3: That's awful.
1: That was life 20 years ago.
3: Yeah, it really was. There were no kind of protections like we see today. Being out and gay. Could cost you your job and it did for me
2: at aol too there was a there was actually a, a group of us that we had our own little lgbt group within the company and it uh it, mm-hmm. it, i don't know that it, it had or even needed any formal recognition but uh but you know we got together we met we went out for drinks we uh you know there were probably geez 12 of us or more i don't i don't remember you know it, it was a solid group of friends that got together and stayed together you know within the company Hey, I remember one thing too, uh, an interesting thing. Back in the old days, the AOL days, AOL didn't come on until like 6.30 or 6 o'clock in the evening. That was because during the day they would use the Stratus computer for coding and changing the system. And when 6 o'clock came around, Ken Huntsman (laughs) would stand up in the work area that they were at and say, okay, everybody finish up your work. We're shutting down the Stratus system to bring it back up as AOL. And they literally would bring down the strata system and then bring it back up as AOL, um, and that was the early days of doing that. Then they were finally able to get a second system. You know, back in those days, and so they had a dedicated, full time running system and then a development system.
0: <laughs> wow! So is it just like separate disks or something? And you would, you would how would, how would that work?
2: Machines. Ultimately, it was separate machines, but but in, in those first days, it was just, you know, it was probably separate disks, but it was just, you know.
1: In the first days, we had six Stratus machines in the back, but the problem was it was initially the time zones that created getting people offline because otherwise we had to pay a lot of money for people to be online during the day, the sysops, the employees, and so forth. But once phone started going away, that changed some of it. But the other part is we got used to it. So we got used to being able to plug with everything and not have to worry about customers until 6 o'clock on the East Coast and and so on. The <laughs> We always did our installs on Fridays, which was really kind of stupid when you look at it back now. but they would go to Vienna Inn for lunch and beer or two, and then they would install the code in time for it to come up at six o'clock. And they're trying to debug it at that time. And, you know, there, there were some fairly interesting stories that Ken and Craig and Mark came up with, (laughs) but eventually they moved the installs to Tuesdays so that we could move away from that Friday disaster point. And uh, it made it a lot easier and more fun. So, but it was still another five years before Ken would trust me to install software for
2: production. That Craig that she's mentioning, of course, she's, they said the name before is Craig Dykstra. A lot of people ha- have uh, got their unique name. So, Craig's address would be Craig at AOL.com uh, because he was there mm-hmm. early enough. So Craig is the reason that I don't have Craig at AOL.com. <laughs> I still have Ersie at AOL.com.
3: <laughs> so at what point was it that we because I remember it was a really big deal the first time it happened that AOL was going to release its user its deleted usernames um, so that so that new people mm-hmm. could, could get the names. It was, it was just a huge deal. And one of the things, now I, I don't remember if this is just purely a story or if it's actually true, but our, our name pool actually covered all of the services that we used because it was a unified login system. Yes. So the name that you created on QLink could not be recreated on AOL.
1: It was one of the smart things we did.
3: <laughs>
1: yep. That's why
4: it took so long for me to get my name because so many people kept typoing Eric.
2: <laughs> I I have a little story, but I so I was dead set on getting a first generation name because you know, if, when I couldn't get Craig, and uh, I had a nickname from uh, from all my friends they used to call me Spanky, and so I looked up Spanky indeed was not taken, so I tried to take get the name and it said Spanky is a reserved word, and I said what the hell so I called up the lady who managed the reserved words and come to find out. S P a spa was the reserved word. And there was a company that used spa and their employees would be spa Rick and spa Judy. And so they, you know, there was probably some, you know, health spa somewhere. And I said, well, do you think that they're going to hire somebody with the name of Inky? <laughs> and she said, what? I said, literally, I mean, really, do you think they're going to hire somebody with the name of N K Y? And she said, Well, no, why? I said, so do you think you could free up Spa Inky, Spanky? And she said, oh, (laughs) yeah, that makes sense. So she freed up, and I got spanky at AOL.com. Now, the only problem with that is there are probably a million kids out there who, who know Spanky from the cartoons or something. I would literally get 20 or 30 emails a day or trying to change password for username Spanky Oh, <laughs> I still have it, but I, I don't use it anymore. Um, there's a whole art to, to trying to figure out a first generation good name. <laughs> That's great. Mm-hmm.
1: I had to test the switch for it. And we ran into a few bugs, but it did finally go out. But part of the problems were on the tandem side where the master account database was. Um less than the code but we freed up all the names we ran the utility because i would not let them run the utility on the master database until we had run it on a copy of the master Mm
2: -hmm. database good job and
1: that's how we got our second tandem believe it or not (laughs) that exercise that that, that explains that and mail (laughs) (laughs) it was my fault
2: (laughs) you're familiar with tandem computers steve no if you could explain it, that'd be great. Stratus computers are, um, are fault-tolerant systems where like, a board has two CPUs, two sets of memory. Everything's mirrored on a board. And then there's two of those boards in the computer. So it, it's multiply redundant so they literally they're fault tolerant to a, to the, a huge degree and when any time a calculation comes in each board does the calculation and then they compare themselves together to see what you know and if it fails on one of the boards it knows which board to take out of service and that board that's out of service can actually call's home to to stratus and orders its replacement Wow. So it's incredibly smart, and Stratus is, uh, is 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 used in banks and all sorts of places. When your when your system just cannot go down, that's um, really cool. So, so that's that's Stratus was that Tandem was also a fault tolerant system, but it was not quite as well done as the way that um, that Stratus was. Stratus, when you wrote code for it, you did not have to think about the fact that it was fault-tolerant. You just wrote your code. In Tandem, in order to take full advantage of the fault tolerance, you, your coding had to be knowledgeable that you were on a fault-tolerant system in order to, to do, take advantage of it. Tandem's a great system, though, uh, and, and we use that usually for uh, accounting stuff, if I remember right. Jan? That's where the master account database is. I'm assuming it still
1: is there. I don't think there are equivalents from a database protection perspective that match Tandem. Mm -hmm. And it's still out there. It's not something you could put on a Solaris box, no matter how much you wanted to make it redundant or not. It's If you want guaranteed, you got it. It's on a
3: Tandem. Well, Tandem was designed to do massive 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 multiprocessing and and that was that was what we needed for our for our accounting system to, for people logging in um, i remember before we got the tandem system we had gotten to i want to say it was either 2500 or 3000 people online simultaneously and we were we were hitting the upper edges of what our strata systems could do for the master login system and um, I, I, I remember, I remember first of all, getting it and, and watching them assemble, assemble the tandem system. It's the only system that I've seen with a completely fiber optic backplane. And then once once it was in place, then all of the coding started. And we didn't hear anything for, I swear to God, it was a year. And then all of a sudden, I get the notification, oh, yeah, we're going to be... Uh, putting in the new master account record system and we're going to be doing it on Wednesday. Um, excuse me, I, I I don't have any visibility into Tandem. No, you're not. Um, it was really nice being the, the mm-hmm. knock manager at that point because I was involved in every go, no-go decision that was made. And I stopped the Tandem launch um, only by a week because they, they remedied that pretty quick. And then the second one was for when we launched internet browsing and everyone was was talking about how wonderful the system was, how fast it was, how we had all of these servers to do image compression, blah blah blah. And it was it was some thousand or 1500 different individual window systems that did all of our compression. And when everyone's going around with the go no go decision going, "Yes, it works. Let's do it." until it came to me. And I said, "Okay. Number 1, we have no visibility into your windows systems how do we know that they're working number 2 we have no visibility into the unix systems that are actually doing the fetching how do we know that they're good and i just went down the line with everyone and it was from that situation where they finally started building in network operations center documentation procedures and monitoring before we before anything would launch
2: that's great do I remember right? The network operations center had like big monitor displays with network status and everything. Did it look like you know a war room of in the Pentagon? Star
3: Trek. Um, a little bit of Star Trek. The the rest in the rest in knock looked like Star Trek. Yeah, describe okay. that to Steve. So if you could. the the knock had two different entrances. Um, and it didn't really matter which one you came into. You walked in and um, you know how like at mission control, you see these banks of systems with screens and they're the they're big console things. Um, we had something similar, except instead of straight lines, it was wrapped around. So any individual network operations center person had access to six different monitor systems that they could throw stuff up on. They were a combination of... Uh, Irix, HP HPUX, and I think we had a Stratus terminal in there until we went moved to emulation. So then we had two PCs and one final Unix system, I think is how that was set up. We also had really, really big monitors hanging on the walls that showed our networking diagram using HP's OpenView. At a glance, you really could get a feel for the health of the system. Once the enterprise management system came out, we had a second monitor put in, big one, so that you could see what the current red-level errors that were flowing into the system were. Um, it It was a really cool environment, especially in Rustin. We had a small knock in Westwood Center Drive until the computer rooms were shut down there, and we had a larger one in um, in the AOL campus in Sterling that I did not have anything to do with setting that up. But I understand that they set it up almost mirroring the setup that I designed for the knock in Reston. Nice, Jan.
1: Side side on his knock system. Once it was finally opening, I think they were going to run it that day or that night. They were going to whatever. Mark had us all come down so we could see this. He was so, you know, like this. And it was. He he described it as, you've got to come see it. It's Star Trek. And we weren't allowed to see it before then. He made that quite clear to us. He said, "You, you all need to stay out of the way when it opens. We'll take you down there. That's great. So I stayed out of your way, Brian. It was impressive. (laughs) So is there anything else you
0: guys want to cover about your time at AOL?
1: I don't imagine that there will be another AOL-type opportunity in any industry at this point forward. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
2: That was the magic time for for a lot of companies. We were not only one of those neat startups like Apple and Microsoft and everything that were developing something that was cool and great and had employees that really worked toward it. We were hiring from that same pool of people. I don't know if you remember Ted Leonsis. Uh, whenever I hired on, he led a, um, a, just an encouragement meeting for the company, and he was telling us that you know the, the pool that we're hiring from is the same pool that Microsoft is hiring from on the West Coast. We are negotiating and trying to get the same employees that they're fighting for and, and we're winning. So he was giving us this great encouragement speech to go out there and you know keep fighting and keep developing this great product that we have. He was a great motivational speaker. That was my first week or so working there. The next day, I, when I was crossing the campus, and I said, hey, Mr. Mister Mr. says you don't know me, I, but I, I attended the meeting yesterday, and I just wanted you to know that if you were the head of a cult, I'd join it. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me, and he says, yeah, but would you drink the Kool-Aid? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it was dead. dead. <laughs> but yeah, we were... We were hiring from the same yeah. pool as as all the big, great companies that were, you know, trying to get the best employees that there were. Yeah. Um, it was a good time.
1: Yeah. Somebody asked one time in an interview, "Did we have foosball?" <laughs> and we actually happened to have a foosball table in the yeah. what we called the game room, which is where all the game people were working, the the product managers were there. But um, I think one of the other most notable things about AOL, which wouldn't exist anymore because everybody has to have at least a degree to get a job, you know, computer service or whatever, is that, first of all, you know, at least Mark was willing to be hired on natural talent. You know, he was willing to hire people on natural talent.
0: Uh But at the same
1: time, everybody was allowed to make mistakes. Just not on the front page of the, you know, New York Journal. You know, you, you don't do that. But um, I'm sorry, what the Wall Street Journal, you know, you can do anything wrong. Just don't show up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. This was critical. The first year we went public, that was the warning sound. He said, do you think this is going to end up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal? Mm. Well, no. Are you sure? Because if not, QA needs to test it. So we would wind back there. But I mean, you always had the opportunity to make a mistake. And you always had somebody who would come help you teach that mistake. And that leisure of the company, I'd say, ended around 96, you know, 95. I've run into people who worked for AOL, you know, like 96 and on. And they described a working culture that we never encountered. You know, you'd walk by an old timer in the hallway and you said, hey, is it still fun? And the first time you got a lukewarm answer, you knew they were going to be gone in six months. Mm-hmm. And that's why I left when I did. Development support, we pulled in all the various groups that I've been working with, or they went under QA. And the VP was awesome. He was great. But there wasn't anything left for me to do. There wasn't anything new. There wasn't anything that needed to be managed. Everybody else... And I don't quite mean this way it says, but I'd set up every group. They knew what they were doing. They didn't need me anymore. (laughs) I didn't have anything new to do except sit there in meetings and listen to people say, oh, we can do that. Well, we did that once. And you got to watch out for this, this. and, And it's like, oh, those are old timers. They don't know what they're talking about. And that changed. That's when the point where it was like, I'm tired of sitting here watching them make the same mistakes. And, you know, it just, and that's when I left.
0: That makes sense, for sure.
1: I think some of that may be the difference between
4: um, some of the different organizations. because operations. One of the things that I loved about the company was, You know, if you look at my resume, approximately every two years, I changed jobs. And I had the encouragement of my management every two years to say, you know, well, what do you want to do now? You've done really well here. Mm -hmm. Do you want to stay here? Do you want to grow here? Do you want to go somewhere else? What do you want to do next? You know, and so I basically hopped around the company and changed my, my expertise with every job that I took. You know, I got certified as a PMP. I got certified as a, as a security professional. I got, you know, all these different things. While I was there, I became a manager. You know, I became a project management lead. and then became a management management lead. And, you know, all of these things that I would not have ever had an opportunity to, because I had come originally from the federal government as a federal employee, you know, it would have taken me 20 years to become a manager there. Mm-hmm. Whereas it took me six years, you know, a day well and you know then i left there and then went back to the government and immediately became you know much more powerful and you know to this day i haven't been there in what is almost 20 years and that stuff is a very small piece of the tail end of my resume now but people still ask me questions you know they still want to know what i did you know I've, i've minimized it a bit on my resume i mean i've worked a long time so i I value the fact that I can have larger than a two page resume at, at this point in my career. But when I, you know, even though I, I, I have done, you know, I try to keep it a, a small part and, you know, it's one of these things where you, you want to know more details, just ask. They end up asking because it's still a large, you know, it's one job or 12 years, you know, they look at that and this, but you, you know, you've hopped out as a contractor, all these others. It's like, well, yeah, contracting isn't the same. It's never had that same, emotional attachment has never had that same encouragement it's never been the same you know AOL was a family AOL was I mean how many of you folks are still my friends how many of my Facebook friends my email friends my Twitter friends my you name the social media friends are still my AOL friends hundreds you know I've got six seven eight hundred you know LinkedIn links Easily, fifty percent of them are my AOL peeps. You know that's that's just what it means to me to to have had this relationship. Um, I will never have that with my current company. I will never have that with any of my previous companies as a contractor. It's just that relationship, that bond, isn't there. Whereas it is here.
3: It, it, it's very much a family bond. I mean, you know, I I I haven't talked to Jan in forever now. And and yet it's it's just like we pick up right where we left off. And I I grew up at AOL. I I started when I was 20. I left when I was 27. I learned how to be a manager there. I I learned what's important in a working life. Okay, yeah, my work-home balance really sucked. But During that time, I really didn't have a problem with calling where I worked home because I felt like I was cared for. I felt like I was watched out for. I didn't have to worry about anyone else tripping me up. I did that well enough on my own. Um, Mm -hmm. But it, it it was always this ability to walk into anyone's office and have a conversation and not have to worry about, am I phrasing this in the right way? Because if they didn't understand, they were going to take the time to understand what you were trying to communicate. Yeah.
2: One of the things too, that uh, my boss always told me, he said, the, the, your strong point, Craig, is that you see the bigger picture. So there were four, three or four of us in test systems. When we had to do uh, the, I think it was monthly uh, bring down the test systems put new stuff in and bring them back up we had a list of, of 35 or 40 systems that we had to do this to and we would go to the employee who kept the list and say give me th- four or five names and go and and, and it was always the same thing we'd, we'd be implementing the same changes and and I started noticing that there were patterns every time I did them so I would go back I' get 10 names the next time, the next time I'd go back and, you know, and, and in the end, it turned out that I was doing 75% of the, uh, of the systems changeovers and everyone else was doing 25%. And, and so we had just sat down and said, Craig, how, how are you doing so many of them? And it was not, it wasn't looking for a pat on the back. It was because there are patterns in the way these things work. And they said, I recognize patterns. And when you see patterns, then you write macros and, you know, and scripts to do them for you. And, and, and the work goes faster. And uh, the other employees, all they knew was that I had to do this, 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 and this. And they sit there and did them, you know, one at a time. Um, so one of the things that I've always learned in all the jobs that I had is I was able to see that, that larger, um, that higher up look of everything, the bigger scope. And uh, that's always done well for me that was one of, that's one of the things I really liked about AOL is uh you know I went into a brand new thing and was able to catch on to it pretty quick and uh help help it be a better system at the right time and then moved on, you know, and when I moved on I actually retired. I haven't worked since uh nineteen ninety nine. I didn't want to see that same Y two K bug happen and it didn't. Uh, actually, that was one of our test systems that was, you know, that one of the little mini AOLs was Y2K and everything had to go through the uh, the Y2K system to make sure that it didn't explode. <laughs> um, that and um, I had an injury to my uh, cervical spine and my thoracic spine from when I was like 19 years old. And it was getting to the point where it was hurting too much. So that and the uh, Y2K bug, I retired and I retired some of that on that well stock options um and I haven't worked since then in two thousand three I got my uh social security disability, and I've lived on that disability uh since then hey Jan go ahead
1: um, and actually uh Craig was involved in this at one point they were saying we were working we were looking at continuity of service and You know, there was a lot of stuff going on about, you know, what if something happened here? So they split the data center uh, so that, you know, they would be in two separate locations and all that stuff. And somebody pointed out that, well, we need to move the Stratuses from here, Westwood Center Drive, to Reston, to the data center. And it's like, oh, no problem. We'll just do that next weekend. And I turned around and said, um, has anybody ever turned off the servers and brought them all back up and they worked and everybody looked at Mark and Ken and yeah, no, I don't think we ever have. (laughs) So we actually had to test that (laughs) With the test systems, we loaded it all with the production code and took it down. And they also went through from a hardware perspective and went through and made sure that all the boards were new. You know, back then at Westwood Center Drive, you wouldn't know that something had gone down on one of the stratuses because the part would show up the next morning and would tell you which box it had to be put into and stuff like that. I mean, like Craig said, it was awesome. You know, they just... That's when they knew that something had broken. It didn't affect the service. That's right. So, but they did. They replaced Well,
3: (laughs) that's not quite true.
1: That was back when it was just Stratus, though. Yeah. Now the software crashed it.
2: (laughs) You could say a power failure, but no, you had redundant power, you know, backups and everything. So you literally was a system may never have gone down.
3: (laughs) Um actually we 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 did have a catastrophic failure on on a Stratus system once
2: mm-hmm.
3: um it took down half of the system um but we we had already i, I don't know how but we had already accounted for that happening and this, the system was able to recover though i i don't remember what was not working when one of the strata systems went down i don't remember it I just remembered that we had a catastrophic failure once and because I happened to be working as the computer operator at that time and nobody believed me when I called and said, <laughs> no, yeah. one of our systems is down. Yeah, it's not supposed to happen.
0: Maybe someone tripped over a power cord.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a different IBM story.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we actually had someone who almost pressed the big red button he lifted up the thing to say, so this is the button that shuts everything off. And uh, Ralston kind of dived at him <laughs> to, in case, because he was just lifting up the thing. But he might have tripped. He might have fallen yeah. against it. And it was like.
2: <laughs> I, I, whenever you told me that story, I said, you know, maybe he wanted to find out if we really could breathe halon gas. You know, if you if you, if you press the, uh, the, the fire department, the fire button. Oh, it was the power button. Oh, okay. Well, it wasn't the fire button. Okay, <laughs> it was
1: how to cut the power in the case of an emergency.
2: In case you didn't know, hey, the the fire suppression system, usually for, for computer systems, is is it infuses the entire room with halon gas. Is that toxic?
4: It takes all oxygen out of the
2: air. It, wow. it, yeah, it immediately uses up the oxygen in the air, but then it immediately you start getting oxygen back. I believe or something, but I, I forget. But it's incredibly perfect for co- to put out computer fires, but I don't think it lasts long enough that it actually can hurt a human or something. Cause it's. <laughs> I
1: believe that changed only as a function of liability and probably only about 15 years ago.
2: <laughs> ah. <laughs> yeah. It definitely used to be a standard in computer rooms. <laughs> That's pretty interesting.
0: I think I heard something like in Japan, they had like the servers on like a, a bunch of marbles. So if there was like an earthquake, the, the room wouldn't be destroyed and the servers would just kind of roll around.
1: <laughs> it makes sense, actually.
2: We, it, the company that I worked for before, uh, we had a terrible problem with with flooding underneath the floor and everything, and, and and so it was like a couple of days of just intense, incredible work to clean all of this. And my boss at that time said to me one of the most inspiring words that I've ever had in all of my work. I, I jokingly said to him. Wow, this is so incredible. This is such an incredible mess. You don't pay me enough for this. And it was said as a joke. And he looked at me, and he said, "On the contrary, Craig, it is exactly for days like this that I pay you." That's funny. And, and, and it's like, wow, that just sunk in so amazingly. All the other days I, uh, are the easy ones. I pay you your salary because you need to be able to work on days like this.
3: <laughs> oh, AOL in those 72-hour days. <laughs> it only happened to me a couple times. My favorite one was when an unnamed developer did a database reload of the forums system and then forgot and did it a second time and brought down the forum system for 72 da- 72 hours while I restored everything from tape.
0: So you were saying there's two different kinds of forums, which ones were these?
3: There there's there's we were talking about forums before, but this is forums, like like bulletin boards. Oh, okay. Like where people go in and and read messages or read Social media. Posts. Yeah.
1: It was the advance of social media that, of course, we didn't get involved in at all. Got it. it.
3: (laughs) Actually, we laid the entire groundwork for social media. Are you kidding? Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) Buddy lists. It's messaging.
0: This has been great. Are there any parting words of wisdom that anybody wants to leave with the listeners?
1: I guess I would say that the biggest thing to take away from AOL as it grew was... To let your employees fail, support them when they fail, teach them as they grow, and they will love you forever. And that's, that's what made it fun. That's what made me put in way too many hours, way too many times. But it really is the way to build a company where you're going to be asking people to go, Beyond their physical limits, you need to create that as family. I could grab anybody from anywhere to help me solve a problem or fix something. Sometimes they didn't like it when I darkened their door, but it was always I could grab anybody and ask them to help, and they would come do it. Um, And that's what AOL inspired and i couldn't say it any other way than that
3: that's great definitely it aol as a a workplace made some incredibly good decisions in the way that they did things the way that they implemented things the fact that they weren't hung up on degrees the fact that um, they listened to their, their their people, the fact that they encouraged people to try, the fact that the only thing about failure that I was ever told is don't ever let someone else tell me you failed first, and that's my single biggest takeaway is it's it's. You're never going to get in trouble for trying. You're only going to get in trouble for not trying and not telling me.
0: It definitely makes sense. You you, you never want your boss to be surprised, right?
3: Words to live by. Hershey?
4: Yeah, I think I think the best things I learned from AOL were to be honest, to, you know, if you make a mistake, be upfront about it and you know, a good manager will accept your mistakes and will help you learn from them. All of my managers at AOL have been the most forgiving and the most willing to guide. Um, It's a last minute anecdote, but my first week at AOL, um, you know, I walked in my office, my boss, George said, here's your computer. And it was still in a box. And I never installed Unix, <laughs> and so I had to install Irix, at the, at the SGI operating system. And that same week, they had delivered $50,000 worth of RAM to my office on, like, a Monday. And by Friday, the box was missing. It had been stolen by the cleaning crew. But the moment I reported it as missing, I was, I was fine nothing was wrong they they weren't sure if it was stolen or thrown away because you know at the time none of the clean crew spoke english and cardboard boxes were being thrown out every single day because we were still building the office building out so there really wasn't any you know and you know i wasn't held liable for it um, had i not said anything i probably might have been but you know it was it was the kind of place i mean here i am 27 kind of going oh my god you know, learning to to trust and to be trusted was was just wonderful and I've taken that with me everywhere I've been. I've um I think one of my most rewarding experiences was I went to a government job and one of my former AL employees found out I was hiring and he interviewed with me and he followed me and he worked for me a second time. And when I left that job, uh, he left about six months later and he said, if you find yourself hiring again, let me know, <laughs> um, he wanted to keep working for me. And I'm like, that was, that is the humongous compliment, you know, to think that AOL taught me to manage in such a way that, that I would have a loyal employee, you know, that, that's, you know, that just makes me feel all gushy inside. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, but it's you know they, they instill they really do instill that, that sense of family and that sense of, of responsibility to yourself and to you the the people you work with and you work for.
2: You make uh, good friends too along the way, and whenever we find a, a good company like AOL, you bring along those people. By the time I was working at AOL, soon after that, m- my boss was someone who had uh, had worked with me several companies before. But my boss, my coworker, another coworker—there, uh, there were five or six of us that all came into the AOL family because we looked out for each other between companies and jobs. Whenever you know you found a great company like AOL that was great to work for, you brought over those friends that were good employees that, that had the same work ethic as you, and you brought them into the family. And my closing uh, thought was this is sort of outward to everyone who ever was an AOL member or thought about it. It's about all of those CD-ROM discs. We're sorry about those, but not too much because yeah. yeah sorry about all those CD-ROMs we sent you. <laughs>
3: Don't
0: forget the floppies. There's a lot of floppies. Oh,
3: the floppies yeah, before that.
4: Say,
3: the three and a half discs kept me, you know, from having to buy discs Floppy disks, ever.
4: Craig, do you know how many unburned CD-ROMs I ran across?
2: No, <laughs> About
4: two hundred thousand. Wow. <laughs> Just in Lulu's area, <laughs> I saw
2: an art installation that uh, somebody had made, like skating ramps with, uh, with, with uh, covered everything with the CD-ROMs. It was, nice. it was beautiful because it all reflects oh, the light. Um, But it was a whole art installation that used uh, old CD-ROMs from the AOL days. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Everybody knew about us because of the CD-ROMs we set out.
1: (laughs) And a lot of them used them. The ones that got thrown away were the people who already had it. I don't need another one. (laughs) Multiple ones a week,
2: almost. Steve, thank you for inviting Uh us. Get a little, get a little bit of an idea of what the employee side was.
0: Yeah, definitely. I appreciate everyone coming on.
1: Welcome to cyberspace.